And we've been in the Gospel of Mark, and we're leading up to the cross. And we've talked a lot about truth. And we'll find today that accepting the truth is the precursor to enjoying love. You can't have love without the truth. You might get a cheap substitute, but it's not God's love. God's love's never divorced from His truth. Because Jesus Christ is truth incarnate, and God is love. Let me read to you from the Gospel of John. You don't need to turn there. Just listen, please. John 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. There was the true light which, coming into the world, enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own. And those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. What we've been witnessing as we go through Mark is a world enshrouded in darkness, in false truth, in counterfeit versions of the truth. And we see it in the lives of all the sub-characters. You've got Peter and Judas and the disciples and the Pharisees, Sadducees, chief priests, scribes, elders, the crowd, Rome. Today we'll look at Pilate. And into this darkness comes the blinding light of truth. And it turns out truth isn't just a concept, it's a person. It's Jesus Christ himself who called himself the way, the truth, and the life. And yet, as we just read, the world couldn't handle the truth. i got to say it at least once. You can't handle the truth. One of the most iconic movie lines, really, of the last hundred years. Tom Cruise with Jack Nicholson on the witness stand, and Tom Cruise says, I want the truth. And Nicholson says, you can't handle the truth. And you know he's right. We can't handle the truth. But I'm here this morning to say that in Christ You can handle the truth. You must handle the truth. You must grasp it with both hands and wrap your arms around it and soak it in and ingest it and meditate and ruminate on it. For Jesus Christ himself is truth incarnate. I'm telling you this morning not to settle for cheap substitutes. And that is what we do in our fallenness. Why is it that we can't seem to handle the truth? Why do we struggle with the truth? The Bible, the revelation of God's truth, tells us that even in Christ, we are still left with two competing natures. The natural man, or the sin nature, or the flesh, the unregenerate heart, those who are not in Christ, only have one nature. Those in Christ have a new nature with an old nature still hanging on. Until that day when we see truth face to face at death or the glorious second coming of Christ, and then we will know truth perfectly, and we will be complete in our sanctification, which the Bible calls our glorification. In the meantime, believers wage this war between the natural man and the spiritual man. 
The natural man has his own concept of truth. The natural man lives life in this way. What do I want? What do I want? What will make me happy? What do I desire? What does my pride tell me about myself? And then, from that starting point, we'll build a truth around that starting point. Now, what's the problem with that? Will that truth actually be truth? Can we deceive ourselves into thinking that the person we are isn't really the person that we are? Isn't that what we saw with Peter last week? He thought he was courageous. He thought he would stand for Jesus no matter what. And he folded so quickly, so easily, even though truth incarnate had told him, you will fail. You will deny me three times before the rooster crows twice. Tonight. And Peter said, no, I won't. I will even die with you if I have to. He was unable to listen to truth and supplanted it with his own truth. Certainly, I know better about myself than anyone else would, we think. And yet God is saying, I made you and know you better than you know yourself. Because there's no deceit in God. He cannot lie. He is truth. What the Bible reveals about us is truth that we must accept. We saw last week, we need to realize the truth and then repent after remorse. When we find out that our truth doesn't align with the truth, we should be remorseful. Oh, how could I have replaced truth with such a cheap substitute? How could I have been so deluded? It should bring remorse. And then repentance. And true repentance will be followed by restoration, our God lifting us back up. And then finally, reminders. Just when you think you've got it licked, be careful. Take heed, lest you fall again. Be on the lookout. The same way that we are tempted to fall, often throughout our life, we are subject to that same temptation. It'll just come at us with different disguises. The spiritual man, on the other hand, starts with the truth as revealed by God's Word and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. So God's Word, if you're unregenerate, it's just words on a page. It's just another book. But when the Holy Spirit illumines your mind, regenerates your heart, the truth of God comes flooding in again, like a floodlight. And you embrace it and accept it and live by it. And you humbly rearrange your thought life accordingly. You humbly rearrange your thought life accordingly. No matter what the cost. And the cost may be great. It may shatter your whole world. It may turn everything upside down. And yet the question is, can I trust God in order to have that kind of paradigm shift, in order to turn my whole life upside down and rearrange life according to God's truth. You may feel like you kind of got it good already. Why would I want to mess with it? I like being king of my own little kingdom. I like being master of my domain. I like being the source of my own truth. And yet, I'm here to tell you this morning that what God has to offer is so much better. So much better. If only we would trust Him. We believe that our happiness is at stake and you haven't been happy until you're happy in Christ. Until you've experienced the joy of the Lord. So, you may be at a place where you're ready to try something new, to cling to truth this morning. Or you may be in a place where you're like, yeah, I feel pretty good about life. Why would I want to rock the boat? Because God is offering so much more. 
And to accept anything less than His free gift is horribly insulting to this gracious God. It's really rebellion. The Pharisees decided that Jesus must be eliminated for their truth to stand. The Pharisees had taken over the synagogues. The Sadducees were smaller in number, but they kind of ran the temple. They had the money, and they were in with Rome, so they had a lot of political connections. The scribes were lawyers, so you know what they're able to do, right? If you're the ones who get to interpret the law, that's a lot of power. They were, the, they were the lawyers and, in some cases, the judges. And then the chief priests and, and elders were those who determined how the law of Moses was going to be carried out and obeyed. Lots of power all the way down that list. We see as early as Mark chapter 3, verse 6, the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him, as to how they might destroy him. Remember, the Pharisees and Herodians were not friends. The Herodians were those who were faithful to King Herod. But they wanted Jesus gone, and so did the Pharisees. So they conspired together. An interesting word here in the Greek is not the word for to kill. It's to utterly destroy. Because just killing Jesus... What happens sometimes when you kill a prophet or a martyr, or a spokesman. They become more powerful. Their message lives on. And so they needed to utterly destroy and ruin Jesus, discredit Him, humiliate Him. This word in the Greeks where we get the name Apollyon, which is a synonym for Satan, the destroyer. Apollyon. Today we're going to see Pontius Pilate trying to escape truth as well. Remember, the Sanhedrin has tried Jesus, found him guilty of blasphemy. He calls himself equal with God. He calls himself the Son of God. According to Leviticus, blasphemy was punishable by death, death by stoning, yet the Jews did not have authority in Rome to carry out a death penalty. So they needed Rome to charge Jesus of a capital crime and kill him. So they're trying to pin on Jesus the accusation of sedition, meaning he's trying to overthrow the government. He calls himself a king, and there's no king but Caesar, they said. They didn't love Caesar. They didn't care about Caesar. They knew in the scriptures that there's only one king, and that's God. Although we see clearly that they had replaced God, so to speak, in their hearts and put themselves on the throne. But here's their strategy, is to get Jesus tried with, with sedition and then crucified. You know, it's fascinating. We've seen that Jesus has been in control of this situation from the very beginning. He is sovereign God. He says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own will, and I take it back up. He prophesied how he would die. He knew he would die by crucifixion. In John 3, 14 and 15, before the famous John 3, 16, he predicts that the Son of Man, much in the same way that Moses lifted the staff in the desert, and all those who had faith looked upon the staff and were saved, so too will the Son of Man be lifted up so that all who look on him in faith will be saved. Those in the wilderness dying of poisonous snake bites, the rest of us dying by the spiritual snake bite of Satan's lies. You read in Matthew twenty-seven nineteen that Pilate's wife warns him not to find Jesus guilty. Don't have anything to do with this man's destruction or demise. She had a dream and suffered greatly, it says. 
while he was sitting on the judgment seat. So imagine Pilate there, Jesus in front of him. His wife comes and interrupts. That probably wasn't protocol. Have nothing to do with that righteous man. For last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. In John chapter 18, the first time Pilate tries him and finds no guilt in Jesus, he says, take him yourselves and judge him according to your law. And the Jews said to him, we are not permitted to put anyone to death. You see, the cart before the horse, we need this guy to die. We need you to carry out the execution. Question this morning to, to set up our text. Do you really want to know the truth and live according to the truth? In other words, can you handle the truth? Of course you would answer, yes. I do want to know the truth and I do live according to the truth because we're in church and it's the right thing to say, but wait till you get in the car on the way home. Wait till Monday. What might the truth cost you this afternoon? What if you needed to apologize or ask your spouse for forgiveness this afternoon? Could you do it? Or would you say, what do I need to apologize for? I'm a good person. Is that what the Bible teaches? Is there anyone in this room without sin? What if you went to work tomorrow and your co-workers were ridiculing and mocking Christ? Would you stand up for him? What would the cost be? Judas didn't want to live with the truth. He discovered the truth, couldn't live with it. Discovered the truth, couldn't live with it. Peter couldn't handle the truth about his own weakness, though we saw later that he came to his senses, repented, was restored, and went to his grave, an upside-down cross, preaching the Word of God. Remember, the Word of the Lord stands forever. Peter may fall, the Word of the Lord stands forever. Peter may cave, Peter may crumble, the Word of the Lord stands forever. Peter, the rock, might sink. The word of the Lord stands forever because the word of the Lord is Christ himself, the word made flesh, the chief cornerstone of the church. Chief cornerstone for all who would believe and be part of the church, a stumbling block for those who choose not to accept the truth. But you can't go around the truth, you can't go over it, you can't go under it. You've got to either stand on it or be tripped up by it. Sanhedrin didn't want to acknowledge that they were only stewards of the truth. They had the truth, they taught the truth, but they were only supposed to be stewards of the truth. Point people to the truth. What's your pastor supposed to do? What's your Bible study leaders, those in authority in the church? Here's the truth. Here it is. I'll do my best using a proper hermeneutic to interpret it. But you need to read it and accept it and live it and proclaim it. Yet the Sanhedrin began to replace God's truth with their own truth and then pass it off as God's truth. And truth showed up and said, you've been misquoting me. And they weren't happy. They immediately said, this guy's got to go. We can't have truth floating around here. Pilate didn't want to deal with the consequences of ruling according to the, the truth. All Pilate had to do was keep the peace in the region he was put in charge of. Just keep the peace. I told a story first service about when I was a high school math teacher. And often I would find that the way to get tenure was just keep the peace in your class. Results mattered less than the vice principal and principal just saying, I don't want a bunch of kids in my office. Keep the peace. Now, it's not that cynical. 
they're interested in learning and education. But the first hurdle to get over as a new teacher is learning to keep the peace in your class. And if you can't, you don't get tenure. And once you do, you're pretty much untouchable in California. And I had this terrible, just terrible class one year. We had this policy at our school back during the 20 to 1 days that they said, kids in algebra have to be in a 20 to 1 class. It's a tough subject to learn. Let's do 20 to 1. And they can't take algebra during seventh period when their mind is kind of shot. Good, good policies. Well, with overcrowding and budget cuts, eventually they had to bypass the policy. And one year I ended up with a whole class of kids who, uh, putting it nicely, you can maybe handle one or two of any one of these kids in, in a class. You know, he's that kid who could disrupt the entire class, could make or break the entire day. And they all ended up in one room. And I, I was like, how is this possible? How is this possible? Well, it turned out because of the special ed schedule, they pull the kids out for remediation. The only place to put them back in for algebra was seventh period. So I invited this. I was like, there's no way I'm going to survive this year with this class. It's just um, someone's going to die, either me or them. <laughs> it's a survival of the fittest. So I invited the school principal, which no teacher would ever invite the principal in to, to show them I can't handle this. But the principal was near retirement, and he was a nice guy. And he came in, and he saw the faces, and they'd all sat in his office many times. And he was like, <laughs> yeah. And he, he was kind and encouraging, but the, pretty much the gist of what he told me was, sucks to be you. <laughs> Pardon me. And he said, just... Do whatever you have to do to survive the year. We're not expecting much out of, out of here. Whatever you have to do. He said, you used to teach junior high, right? right? Use candy or a token economy or whatever you did with junior hires. I had one kid in that class who threw a desk at me. I had another kid who told me, you don't know how to teach algebra correctly because this is my third time taking it and you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so. And so my principal there was kind of like Pontius Pilate in, in, in that sense. He was like, I don't care what you have to do, just make peace. I just don't want to have to deal with these kids. I'm this close to retirement. <laughs> so uh, I got through the year. And honestly, those are the kids that I end up loving the most. They got a special place in, in my heart. But all, so many in one class. Whew. So here's Pilate's dilemma. He's got an innocent man. He knows he's an innocent man. He realizes that the Jews are out for blood because they're jealous of him. He knows that. But instead of saving an innocent man, instead of wanting a reputation for truth and honesty and integrity, he says, what's the most expedient action. He tries. There's some last-ditch efforts to save Jesus. He flogs him. Jesus is so disfigured after the flogging, he thinks that maybe the crowd will change their mind, but they don't. Then he remembers that there's a Jewish tradition during the Passover of releasing a prisoner. This is his last-ditch attempt to not have to crucify Jesus. See, the Passover symbolizes God's mercy. And so the Jews had a tradition that we would mercifully release a prisoner. So Pilate finds the most hideous prisoner he can find, Barabbas. We don't know much about this man, only that he was a cold-blooded murderer. And putting this gentle, humble, beautiful, honest, meek, man next to Barabbas, he figured they would let Jesus go free. And they chose Barabbas because no one wanted to handle the truth. No one wanted, 
that around anymore. A reminder of our fallenness. A reminder of just how ugly we really are. Just uh, to help you out here, because this is confusing to a lot of people, Jesus was tried six times, three by the Jews, three by the Gentiles. In a little timeline, Friday night between 1.30 and 3 a.m., Jesus is sent to Annas, the former high priest, although he's not the current high priest and it's not his jurisdiction to be trying this case. He already decides that Jesus is guilty of blasphemy and should be killed. It's not his decision to make, although we find out he's the puppet master pulling all the strings behind the Sanhedrin. He sends him to his son-in-law, Caiaphas, who's the current high priest. That's where Peter denies Jesus three times from the outer courtyard. From there, Jesus is held in confinement after he's been slapped, mocked, spit on, ridiculed by the Sanhedrin. They're waiting for sun-up because legally you can't try a case in the middle of the night. So they're waiting for sunrise to hold a mock trial in public. Sometime between 5 a.m. and 6 a.m., the Sanhedrin is there. You know, in a day with no cell phones or text messaging, how did the whole Sanhedrin all end up at the same place at 5 a.m.? Well, they were already there. They'd already tried it. They were just waiting for the sun to rise. They find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, which in Leviticus is punishable by death. He calls himself the Son of God, the Messiah, which is true. Absolutely true. And they say, oh, well, do we need any more witnesses? It's come out of his own mouth. And they can't stone him to death because, again, only Rome can execute a prisoner. So they bring him to Pilate. But so that they don't defile themselves, they're not allowed to go into the praetorium. They kind of have to wait outside. So Jesus goes in to talk to Pilate. Reading in Mark 15, where you can turn now, Mark 15, 1. Early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and scribes and the whole council immediately held a consultation. And so that's your third trial. Immediately uh, binding Jesus, they led him away and delivered him to Pilate, who normally lives closer to the coast, but he's in Jerusalem for the Passover. Keeping an eye out on things. making his presence felt. And Pilate questions Jesus and says, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, It is as you say. Something happens in between that statement and the next line where now Jesus is out in the open near the chief priests. And they began to accuse him harshly. Then Pilate questioned him again, saying, Do you not answer? See how many charges they bring against you. What kind of charges were they bringing against him? He calls himself a king. Only Caesar is king. How convenient for them now to say Caesar is our king when they need to get rid of Jesus. But they really didn't want Caesar as king. They didn't like him as king. But Jesus made no further answer, so Pilate was amazed we read that this is to fulfill prophecy in Isaiah 53, that like a sheep before his shearers, Jesus was silent. What could he say? His life is his testimony. On a side note, your life is your testimony. If people bring accusations against you, let your life speak for you. Let your life speak for you. Let God be your vindicator. If there's something that you need to repent of, then repent of it. But if you're living according to the Word of God, walking humbly before your Lord, loving the Lord and loving others, let your life be your testimony in that sense. 
Don't leave your accusers with anything other than, well, he's just so nice. You know, there's, there's really nothing to point to. And it says, so Pilate was amazed. Assuming he was amazed because everyone who's brought before Pilate with charges of capital crimes are going to be defending themselves over and over and over. It's not my fault. It wasn't me. It was somebody else. Jesus doesn't say any of these things. Turn to John 18. It says 19 up on the slide. It's 18. So, so many good, good, good people this morning. Let me know after the sermon. <laughs> it's John 18. Because they didn't want you to be milling around John 19 like they were. It's John 18.33. We get a little bit more information about how this questioning went down. Therefore, Pilate entered again into the praetorium. So this is the second time Pilate questions Jesus. What happened in between? Pilate thought he'd found an out. You know, what was Pilate's out to just say what? Not guilty. But he was afraid there'd be riots. And either the mob would kill him or Caesar would have him killed. So he couldn't, couldn't handle the truth. He finds out Jesus is a Galilean and he's like, Oh, that's Herod's district. Send him to Herod. And Herod's a psycho, we know that, and he's heard of Jesus and his miracles, and he says, oh, do me a miracle. Do a miracle for me, and Jesus won't perform, so Herod's, oh, get him out of here. Send him back to Pilate. So he had to go back to Pilate, and Pilate's left with having to make this final decision. So Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? In other words, what have you witnessed? I don't care about what he said, she said, they said. What do you think? What have you seen? What have you heard? Remember, Jesus has lived a peaceful life. He's commanded his followers to love God and love your neighbor as yourself and to even love your enemies, to turn the other cheek when insulted, care for the poor, to submit to authority. He's fed the hungry and healed the sick, raised the dead. He's never said a word against Caesar. When asked who they should pay taxes to, he said, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, render under God what is God's. Jesus is forcing Pilate to come to grips with the truth. Pilate answers sheepishly, well, I'm not a Jew, am I? How should I know? Of course he knows. It's his province. He's supposed to know. How could you not know about Jesus? Nobody's falling for that. No more than when some of our current leadership in this nation says, oh, I didn't know. Well, either you're lying or incredibly inept. Or both. Thank you. (laughs) Your own nation and the chief priest delivered you to me, so what have you done? I'm not the one in trouble here. You're the one in trouble. What have you done? Why do your people hate you? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. See, yes, I am a king, but no sedition. I'm not trying to cause a revolution here. Just a revolution in people's hearts. I have no army. In fact, when Peter lopped off Malchus's ear, John tells us that Jesus healed it. He said, put your sword away. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. Therefore... Pilate said to him, So you are a king. 
Jesus answered, You say correctly that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice, Pilate said to him. What is truth? What is truth? It's not a, oh, you have the truth? What is it? Tell me. I've been wanting it. No, this is a rhetorical, he knows what the truth is, but he knows what the consequences of living by the truth Reminds me of the two men that confronted Jesus after he cleansed the temple. Who gave you the authority to do this? Jesus said, I'll answer your question if you answer mine. The baptism of John, from God or from men? And the two men consulted and said, oh, boy. If we say of God, he's going to say, then why haven't you been baptized? And we say of men, John's popular. The people who get baptized by John think it's of God. If we say of men, we're going to have an unhappy mob. And so they say, we don't know. We don't know the truth. Beloved, we are living in a time where we've just come out of a season which philosophers have called postmodernism. Modernism during the Enlightenment said science and technology will solve all of our problems. It'll answer all of our questions and it'll fix all of man's problems. And then we had two world wars. And postmodernism came in, which said, well, if there is truth, we can't know it. And yet we found it incredibly difficult to live without truth. John Cage, the jazz musician, tried to not write music and just play random notes. You can't just play random notes. At some point, there's going to be a pattern in a melody. Otherwise, how do you like name any song and then play it again? Right? Jackson Pollock, the artist, used to tie paint cans to a string and poke holes in the bottom and let them swing over a canvas because he was trying to capture this we-can't-know-truth in, in his paintings. And yet, he realized he chose the paint cans, he chose the colors, he chose the length of the strings, he decided how many holes to po- poke in the bottom. He decided to let them swing because gravity's at work. He didn't put the canvas on the ceiling, he put it under the cans. You know, So, truth is inescapable. We are now living in a time where people are very interested in truth, but not the truth. And Satan and the world are all too willing to tell people that you can find the truth inside. Right, Disney, if you believe with all your heart, if you wish upon a star, it makes no difference who you are. And anything your heart desires will come true. Well, Jiminy Cricket, how about that promise? I can determine my own truth. The health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, which isn't a gospel at all, name it and claim it. If you just believe it, it'll happen. It'll materialize the power of positive thinking made popular by the pastor of the Crystal Cathedral, which is now bankrupt. A monument to the foolishness of man determining truth for himself. Beloved, you and I are going to be tempted in the same way Satan's always tempted in the garden. Did God really say, if you eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will be able to determine your own truth? And we know we're not going to fall for that, but the way we'll fall for it is, well, yes, God is speaking to me. God is speaking to me. God told me last night, God told me this morning. Well, how do you know that's not you speaking to yourself and attributing the words to God? Beloved, keep your Bibles open. Read them. Understand them. Meditate on them. Ruminate on them. Any word you think you're getting from God, measure it with His Word. As Pastor Andy once said, if you got a word from God, 
and it's in the Scripture. If it's not in the Scripture, it's not a word from God. And if it is in the Scripture, you don't need it. You've already got the Scripture. Now, that's not to say that God doesn't speak to us as we read the Bible, informing us and enlightening us. I truly believe God was speaking this morning as I heard the worship set and heard Cliff speak and knew what the sermon would be on. Wow! God is speaking to us about truth and love this morning. He really wants to get this message across to His people. Charles Spurgeon fought this fight in his day. He called it the downgrade controversy. People were downgrading the Word of God and replacing it with their, their own truth, their own watered-down truth. I'm going to read you a quote that I, I kind of watered down a little because he's pretty harsh. Dear brother, honor the Spirit of God as you would honor Jesus Christ if He were present. If Jesus Christ were dwelling in your house, you would not ignore Him. You would not go about your business as if He were not there. Do not ignore the presence of the Holy Ghost in your soul. I beseech you, do not live as if you had not heard whether there were any Holy Spirit. To Him pay your constant adorations. Reverence the august guest who has been pleased to make your body his sacred abode. Love him, obey him, worship him. Take care never to impute the vain imaginings of your fancy to him. You got that? Take care never to impute my ideas imputed to the Holy Spirit. I have seen the Spirit of God shamefully dishonored by persons who have said that they have had this and that revealed to them. There has not for some years passed over my head a single week in which I have not been pestered with the revelation of hypocrites. Some people are very fond of coming with messages from the Lord to me, and it may spare them some trouble if I tell them once for all that I will not have any of their messages." Never dream that events are revealed to you by heaven, or you may come to be like those who dare impute their blatant follies to the Holy Ghost. If you feel your tongue itch to talk nonsense, trace it back to the devil, not to the Spirit of God. I watered this down. I really did. I really did. Whatever is to be revealed by the Spirit to any of us is in the Word of God already. He adds nothing to the Bible and never will. Let persons who have revelation of this, that, and the other go to bed and wake up in their senses. I only wish they would follow the advice and no longer insult the Holy Ghost by laying their nonsense at His door. Charles Spurgeon, the Prince of Preachers and a great preacher of love, and you're like, wow, that's really harsh, Charles. That's really harsh. He's saving harsh words in love, in love, because you understand how deluded we could be into thinking, God heard my plans and rubber-stamped them. I have seen this in so many different instances where two people, maybe even a husband and wife, saying, well, God told me, you have to do this, or God told me you have to do that. God told me that it's okay for us to do X, Y, or Z sin. It's okay for me to be angry at you. It's okay for me not to submit to you. It's okay for whatever the case may be. People come to me often and tell me that God told them to tell me something. Most of the time it's encouraging, though, and it's something from God's Word, and that we can accept. I was reading my Bible this morning, God brought you to mind, and I prayed this verse over you. Oh, that's beautiful, that's wonderful, that's how the Holy Spirit operates. But I've gotten commands from God straight through people. God told me this morning that you need to preach on this text. I'm just going to go to the next text. Be careful. Who determines truth? We all try to determine truth on our own. 
autonomously. We, we do it. We're all guilty of this. It's part of our fallen nature. Our sinful desires tend to color our perception of truth. We exchange the truth of God for a lie, it says in Romans 1. Truth must reside outside of us. It must be revealed to us, and we must accept truth by faith. And if it really is true truth, if it's the truth from God, we can reasonably expect that this truth will accurately define our world. It'll accurately define my own soul, even if I'm like, no, that can't be me. Oh, yes, it is. I remember early in my Christian walk, my wife and I would say, sometimes we wish we could go back to ignorance. Not enough to not be saved, but there's a a responsibility of knowing the truth and reorganizing your life. In our flesh, we were jealous of those who just kind of come to church and listen to the message and go home. And then chase after material things and don't serve. It was our flesh envying those who had decided, I only want this much truth. And then we would repent of that and remind each other, we don't want to go back there. We used to live there. It was horrible. We were miserable. Is ignorance really bliss? This is also from the Gospel of John. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him, if you continue in my word, if you continue in my truth, then you are truly disciples of mine and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. They answered him, well, we're Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever Jesus says, amen, amen, it's listen to this. This one's important. Don't miss this. Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So what does truth set us free from? And what does it set us free to do? Through faith, we are able to see ourselves for who we really are and see God for who he really is. That's important. You can't get anywhere in life until you see yourself for who you truly are, the way God sees you, and see God for who He truly is. So we tend to put Him down here and put us on the throne. We've got to, to flip this over. God is not just offering... Uh, pardon me. And if we live according to the truth, no matter what uh, the consequences are, we've got to trust that that's an infinitely better life than living in some watered-down version of the truth. God is not just offering forgiveness of sins, though He is. He gives Himself to us. He's offering Himself. He's offering to be one with truth itself. To live in truth and have truth live in us. Knowing we are loved by God forever, our union with Christ allows us to overcome our false truth about the world and ourselves. We become free to love God and love the things God loves and love the way God loves. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Don't you want that? Don't you want that? You're like, I think I have that already. You can have it in more and more, ever-increasing measure. And every day that you decide to reject God's truth, you lose the ability to love God, love others, and love the way God loves. Jesus said, abide in me. Abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. C.S. Lewis discovered this truth. This truth that he doesn't even see himself rightly and that it's the key to the next big step in your sanctification. I've read this passage out loud before. It's the first time I've put it in print. 
And you see, looking back, how all the plans you have ever made always have shipwrecked on that fatal flaw. This is the next great step in wisdom, to realize that you also are just that sort of person. You also have a fatal flaw in your character. All the hopes and plans of others have again and again shipwrecked on your character, just as your hopes and plans have shipwrecked on theirs. It is no good passing this over with some vague general admission such as, well, of course I know I have my faults, right? Oh, well, we're all sinners. It is important to realize that there is some really fatal flaw in you, something which gives others just that same feeling of despair which their flaws give you. And it is almost certainly something you don't know about, like what the advertisements call halitosis, bad breath, which everyone notices except the person who has it. Are you longing for love and intimacy with God and love and intimacy in your human relationships? Does something feel elusive? Something's missing. Can I suggest to you this morning that Possibly it's your fatal flaw that keeps shipwrecking your desires. You want to let someone in, but you push them away. You want to live in the light of the truth, but you know what that truth will cost, and you're afraid of the house of cards falling down. Let the house of cards fall down and let God rebuild your house on truth, on Him. You know the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the whole story about the two houses, the one we sing in Sunday school. You say, well, what's the moral of the story? Build your life on Jesus. No, he said, whoever hears these words of mine and does them, I will liken him to a man who builds a house on a rock. It's hearing the words of Jesus and trusting them so that you do them. Faith, true faith, will always lead to works. James says, faith without works is a dead faith. How do you know you're trusting in Jesus and trusting in his truth, that you will live according to the truth and embrace it and be happy to embrace the truth? Will you allow others, though, to point out the speck in your eye? What if they don't get the log out of theirs first? Well, it certainly makes it easier to accept people pointing out the speck, but You don't have to wait for people to get the log out of your eye. If people are telling you, and lots of people are telling you, there's this thing, listen. But why, you ask, don't the others tell me? Believe me, they have tried to tell you over and over again, and you just couldn't take it. You can't handle the truth. These are people who love you. Why would they lie to you? Listen to them. Accept what they have to say. Perhaps a good deal of what you call their nagging or their bad temper are just their attempts to make you see the truth. And even your own faults you don't know, uh, that you do know about, you don't know fully. You know, yeah, I know I have this problem. Nah, it's, it's this problem. Can I tell you about a fatal flaw of my own? Uh-oh, we're getting personal. If it will help anyone anyone to, to cling to Christ in truth, then I'm, I'm okay to share from the pulpit. About seven years ago, while in seminary, I had this awful fear that I would be disqualified from ministry if my wife wouldn't be able to kind of get up to my level. Yeah. Yeah. My fatal flaw. And one day, the director of admissions, Ray Maringer, retired Air Force colonel, said, Men, anyone who wants to know how to love their wife more, be in my office at 4.30 tomorrow morning. I'm like, well, do I want to love my wife more, or do I want three more hours of sleep? I better be there. Not because I wanted to love my wife more, but because it would be one more evidence that I'm a great husband. Great husband, worthy to be one of God's preachers, worthy to disciple people. I thought there might be three men there. There were 40. We didn't fit in his office. We had to find a conference room. Apparently, other men struggle with this notion that I'll love my wife by proving I'm the best 
husband out there. Is that love, though? That's pride, cloaking itself in love. Well, she's got to love me and respect me. Look at this resume. Look at this resume. And in all, in all honesty, I was, a, I was a good guy on paper, a good guy. But what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 13? Without love, just a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Bang, bang, bang. Every good work I do, just another hit over the head of how good you're not and how lucky you are to be married to such a man as myself. And what is your problem and why can't you get your act together? I'm not proud of that, but I had a decision to make that day when God showed me the true truth about my own heart. Am I going to dig my heels in and say, no, no, it's not me? Or do I go home to my wife and confess my sins and ask her forgiveness? And my flesh was like, forgiveness for what? You do so much good. But with the help of the Holy Spirit and other men praying for me, I went home and and confessed. And I thought she would hold it over my head. And now I'd be like, great, there goes my resume. (laughs) And instead, it melted her heart. Tears began to flow. And she said, I've waited so long to hear those words. I'd rather be married to a man with flaws who's humble than a perfect man. So hard to be married to the perfect man all the time. Really? You like me better? A bundle of, you know, sin? and Well, that's the truth. I want to be married to a man who accepts the truth. That's a man who can preach the truth. And so... I'm learning to be suspicious. Anytime I do something good for my wife, did I do it because I love her? Or am I trying to pad my resume? What an amazing change it made in our marriage. The intimacy and flourishing and the ability to come to one another and confess our sins and be honest and not hide behind fig leaves. I had no idea that leading my wife the way the Bible says to lead is to even lead in confessing your sins. To say, I don't have it all together. I'm scared sometimes. I thought the last thing in the world a woman would want to ever hear from her husband is he's scared. I don't know if I can be this perfect guy. You don't have to be. Just be a humble, godly guy. Just be a guy who clings to Jesus and loves his family. I can be that guy. Oh, can't tell you the amount of weight that fell off my shoulders that day, too. Free to love, free to be honest, free to admit who I really am, and free to thank God for His amazing grace He poured out in my life. You know, when you think you're up here, then grace is only this much. Or worse, I don't need grace at all. Jonathan Edwards discovered this truth. He said, I confess that experience teaches me the need of constantly maintaining of a watchful and jealous eye over my own heart with humble prayer to God for light to enable me to judge truly of myself. He who has a right sense of himself with respect to God will open his eyes to see himself aright in all respects. Let the light of God's truth expose your heart, and then you'll be able to see truth everywhere. But if you cling to a lie in your heart, that's going to jade everything around you, everything you see. I had to read a commentary on Edwards' preaching. Not Usually commentators commentate on the Bible, but Edwards' preaching is so complicated you need a commentator to explain it for you. He's said, therefore, it is strategic when Edwards preaches in such a way as to leave his hearer undone. The goal of the sermon is not to empower, but rather to leave one with no foothold or handhold other than Christ. You love that? 
Nothing left but to cling to Christ. It is meant to reveal your own heart so that even in the areas where you think you are moral, I'm a good guy, I'm a good husband, what you find instead is profound sin. Self-help has always been a temptation for the church. Primarily, the solution to sin is God Himself. The recognition of vice in our hearts can lead us to the cross and cast us, just as in salvation, upon the overflowing mercy and grace of God. Can I love my wife even if she doesn't get her act together? Well, did God love you when you were unlovely? Did He not? While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Are you not unlovely yourself? Can your family and your spouse and your children love you when you're unlovely? You'll make it a lot easier for them if you admit and confess your unloveliness. And then your family, your friends can say, we know. Good to know that you know too. We, we forgive you. We extend grace because we know we need grace from you. But really hard to live around somebody who doesn't think they need grace. But if I admit to those things, won't it undermine my ability to, to lead in my house? No. In fact, just the opposite. Confessing sin and weakness gives you the right to lead at home and to lead in the church and lead in your Sunday school. Edwards wants his readers to grasp the idea that knowledge of God and knowledge of self are mutually informing. Therefore, it is, our, it is important to trace out the roots of our sins and expose them to the light of God's revelation. Misunderstanding who we are is almost as problematic as misunderstanding who God is. It is the root of all sorts of sin. If you think you're not that sinful, then God's not that amazing. The holier you see God, the less holy you will see yourself, and the more amazing that He chooses to love us and have relationship with us. This is the overarching picture Edwards gives of redemption, and it is the picture often missing from many evangelical notions of salvation. Salvation entails God's self-giving that His people may participate in the love relationship the Father has to the Son. By grounding salvation in union with God, we are seeking not just forgiveness, but we get God Himself. It's not just that He says, you're forgiven, and then He walks away. We're forgiven so that we can have that Love relationship. Partake of the love the Father has had with the Son for all eternity. Faith does not merely lead to forgiveness. It leads to Christ. Let me skip this slide and go to the last slide here and wrap up. You can handle the truth because accepting the truth means you get Jesus forever. You get a relationship with Jesus forever. He comes to dwell in you. To be loved perfectly by God. It's not just that you get the truth. Truth is a person. You get Jesus. Don't settle for anything less. I close with this quote from Albert Moeller, the president of Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And great evaluator of our culture. He can speak on just about any topic with great authority. Recently at Joel Osteen's church in Texas in their mega stadium church, his wife spoke and said something to the effect that when you come to church, don't obey God for God. Do it for yourself. So you can be happy, because nothing makes God happier than when you're happy. So don't obey God. Obey yourself. It's like uh, the Mountain Dew commercial. Obey your thirst. Well, what if your thirst is your sin nature? And so Al Mohler wrote this article. I, I recommend you read the whole article. It's on albertmohler.com or almohler.com. And he says this, the important issue this is the prosperity theology is a false gospel. We know that. 
But this is the part I want you to hear. The problem with the prosperity theology is not that it promises too much, but it aims for so little. Why settle for temporary health and wealth, right? When you can have God Himself. Let's pray. Oh, Father, forgive us. Forgive me for settling for so much less. For the years wasted thinking that if I build myself up in the eyes of man that I would experience joy and happiness. Lord, restore the wasted years in all of us the way only You can. Restore our relationship with You. Restore our relationships with one another. Restore our marriages and our relationships with our children. May we live in the light of truth and embrace truth no matter where it leads us. And may it start in our own hearts that we can humbly accept the truth about ourselves. So that we can live with the truth. Jesus Christ did not have to hide, not run, not obfuscate, not replace, but to live in the glorious light of His truth, knowing, knowing that He loves us no matter what, and that we can love one another and you in that same way. I pray and ask this in Jesus' name, my Savior. Amen.